people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. What's the first thing that pops into your head when I say Chip and Dale? I bet it's these guys! But certainly the second would be those rascally cartoon chipmunks, Chip and Dale. What if I did something like... I am into nuts! <laughs> good, good, I love it. Great stuff! Woo! Just want to remind you guys I'll be at FanCon this afternoon. Hey, watch out! I'm keeping myself fit and, you know, my updated modern look. Don't you think you'd have more fans here if Chip did these events with you? I hadn't thought about him in a while. I should give him a call. See how life's treating him. Life is the worst. Which is why you need good insurance. <sighs> a message on my landline. I don't like that. You're still mad about Rescue Rangers getting canceled, but I just got a call from the police and I need your help. I searched the perimeter. No clues. Why would there be six missing tunes in a month and not one clue? Oh, no! Chip! Dale, you look different. It's no secret I had the CGI surgery. What's been up with you? You know, this, that, other vague things to fill the space of this conversation. Cool! We can see what we can find out and then pass it along to the officer, but that's all we're gonna do. So you're saying the Rescue Rangers are back? Yes! <laughs> you two come poking around where you don't belong, and I can't have that. Run! I gotta... What are you looking at? Honestly, your weird dead eyes. <laughs> Over here! Go get him! This is awesome! I was always more of an Alvin and the Chipmunks person. You monster. It was like professional. <gasps> Same time. <gasps> Jinx, you, you owe me a non-brand specific cola. What? That was crazy. <gasps> Somebody go get his book. <gasps> this is incredible. Oh, we lost it. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Dan Greger and Doug Mand, all about the new film Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, as well as their earlier career, where they were part of the Upright Citizens Brigade. They were two of the writers on How I Met Your Mother, had a Netflix series called Pretty Smart, and a whole bunch of other things that we talk about in this interview. I hope you enjoy it. Well, obviously, I want to talk to you guys about Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, but I would love to know a little bit more about you, if that's okay. Doug and I, we met in a terrible writing class at NYU, where we group wrote an I Love Lucy spec script, guest starring Alicia Keys. It made no sense. And so we were like, okay, like I, I think we're on the same page about how insane this is. I had started a sketch group called Hammercats. That we were doing auditions and ran into Doug on the street. I was like, you're the funny guy from my writing class. 
And I was like, you got to come, you know, audition and join this group. And so we started doing sketch comedy there. And that group kind of moved along to the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. And we were lucky enough to like get into UCB right when it was sort of exploding. And we, we got to be a part of a, a great little generation of comedians coming up there and getting to just experiment and be weird and make stuff constantly. We were really, we had an hour long show every Friday where we had to just fill the stage with, with like short films and sketches and weird stuff. And so it was definitely a wonderful experimental box for us to try and fail in. We had terrible sketches and great sketches and all sorts of just stuff that like will never rightfully ever be seen again. And nobody was filming a lot of that stuff, which is also to its benefit. But eventually we reached a place in the comedy scene where we were like pretty popular sketch comedians around live theater in New York. And it, you know, sort of hit a wall. You're like, you realize like, oh, there's very few places for that to go. We had applied to like the Aspen Comedy Festival and and they literally told us you can come, but you have to cut some of your members because you're too big. And so it just sort of reached a point where it's like, oh, we're we're never going to make a dollar at this. Like where there's no way we can like earn a living and keep doing this forever. And so we started trying to think about how to turn our film sketch abilities into more of a narrative kind of thing. How can we make this into something that could be purchased and bought and like actually like get us jobs perhaps. And so we went out and we filmed like a pilot presentation with our other writing partner at the time, Adam Pally. It was called We Are Internet Millionaires. And it was about, it has only turned into more of a tragedy in, in retrospect, but it was basically about like young tech morons being handed a company with no actual ability to like run a company. And so we ended up getting some offers from like some networks to to develop that. And, and it sort of turned into like our sort of first foot in the door to actually get some jobs in Hollywood. And, and that that was sort of what allowed us to turn our our live comedy sketch comedy roots into into like a, the start of a career. Doug, is that how you remember it or is that all lies? This guy is just such full of shit, man. I mean, it's like I came with these fully formed ideas. And uh, I called them my golden ideas that were sure things. No, that's exactly how it happened. It really is. It's, it was a great time. And I, we were talking about 20 years ago that I, that I luckily ran into Dan in the street and he said, audition for this group. We hustled and we were the, it was a combination of hustling, being in the right place at the right time and performing a ton in a basement underneath the supermarket uh, in Chelsea, New York, and then trying to figure out how to turn it into a career. And we were, we were fortunate enough to do that. How many members was the UCB that you had to cut members if you wanted to go to Aspen? We started as a like a 16 person collective. You know, we this, if you remember the state, the state was also an NYU sketch group and we were obsessed with them and they were sprawling. I think they had 10 or 11 people at a certain point. And so we were like, yeah, everyone can just invite all your friends in. It's, you know, I mean, honestly, that was half half the value of that was that you always could fill houses. Because you had everyone had, you know, if you have 12 people, you only need to bring three friends and then you got a pretty big house. But when we graduated, we graduated sort of the, the senior class of comedians on that group. We sort of moved along to UCB. And even that senior class was sort of like, uh, I think that was like nine. nine. I think that was like nine. And they were like, it's, it's just too big. There were sketch groups going with like three or four people at most. We never really entertained like that conversation. We're just like, oh, fuck, I guess this is not how we're going to make our names. Not that that even would have done anything, even if we'd gone to Aspen. There was 
many, many brilliant comedians who went to Aspen who they got nothing out of it too. It basically was just like, that was the only, at our, at that point, the only clear path that we thought to success. We didn't have agents. We didn't have, you know, representation. It was like, you went to Aspen or you, and that's how you got in front of the people that, that make TV and make movies and, and uh, agents. So it was really, it was heartbreaking at the time because it was, it did feel like the end all be all of like that. What else can you do to break in? But it, it was not. Tell me a little bit about the timeline as far as, because I know you did a lot of shorts. Eventually you work on NTSF SDSUV and then How I Met Your Mother. Which came first, How I Met Your Mother or NTSF? I think it was about the same time. I think we, I moved out here with fantastically brilliant writer named Curtis Gwynn and, and another writer named Jack Dolgen. And Curtis, who now runs Stranger Things, was writing for NTSF. Dan and I had gotten How I Met Your Mother, I think, around the time. And I, th- I think it was pretty much in tandem, right, Dan? Like, I, I don't think... As was- a timestamp, I mean, I'm so funny that you even, like, think to ask about NTSF because we loved it. It was a great show. It was definitely this period of UCB sketch types getting their weird shows on air. And we had just written, like, Adam Pally had a a very, I think a one-off sketch pilot that aired with the Emmys for pop culture parodies. And we had just written, done that with him. And so we, it's sort of what got us out to LA finally. And so we were working on NTSF like right after that. But likewise, we had, we had just, we kind of moved here and we got How I Met Your Mother right around the same time. It was pretty contemporaneous, but we weren't in the room at NTSF, but they, they, they offered us a, a script. And so we were, and, and, so they they were kind they were kind of in tandem. One didn't really lead to another. Just they were two things kind of happening. And I mean, the NTSF thing was basically only like a month and a half or whatever. Like we wrote our first script and got notes, did a second draft, and but uh, but very excited to be a part of that. Especially considering we we both by going to UCB, we grew up kind of idolizing Paul Shear and also Curtis, who later became who later became friends with both of them. So we really jumped at the chance to, to, to write on that very wonderfully weird show. I never realized how funny Kate Mulgrew was until I watched that show. Oh, oh my God. My. I that know. She is the a hundred percent. She is the revelation of it. I, like, she is a powerhouse and, and she plays it so real and so dramatic. It is, it is fantastic. If you haven't seen it, if people are listening, it's, it, it's really you watch and you're like, holy shit, how did they get this made? And I mean, they did it on a shoestring budget, but yeah, it, it's so good. It's so much better than it should be. I'm always curious when it comes to the creative process, and especially when you've got multiple guys who are writing, acting, directing, producing, all this stuff. What's your guys' process when you're coming up with ideas and kind of going back and forth with things? For us, it's very much writer-driven always, even, even when it's something for us to make and direct or star in. Not starring anymore. Where no one wants that. But like, even when we were, that was a big part of our conception of these projects when we were starting. Was like, was like, ah, you know, like nobody's gonna work as hard on your project as you. And so there is a certain element of like, if I want someone to take take this seriously, like one of us needs to do it because they're the only ones that are really gonna like. Even the acting sometimes, where it's just like, like, yeah, I'm gonna. I know even the lowest bar of like. I'm going to learn my lines and I'm going to show up on time because I want to get this made. So, you know, that's, that was always a part of it, but the real of it is like the writing is always has to be the very, very first thing. 
even though like we're from improv backgrounds and improv is great and super fun, like it's always just the last piece of the puzzle. It's always the just the color, the flavor on top of of the of the really thought out writing beforehand for us. So we definitely really, really make a point to and we we won't even touch a script until we've outlined the shit out of it for a long time beforehand. It's really important for us that that stuff is is like as sort of like clearly agreed upon. It's one of the best parts about having a writing partner, too, is that like you're basically in in a writer's room constantly with each other. And you're sort of you're in contract with the other with your writing partner where it's like if I'm going to go, you know, we 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 basically will outline a script and then we'll send each other off and be like, I'm going to go take these couple scenes. You're going to take those couple scenes. And so, you know, there's really no room for like coming back and being like, I just did something else entirely. I didn't feel like it. There's an agreement between us that it's like, Oh, this is what we discussed. So like, even if it's not working or it's not good, then like, just put the shitty version down and we'll talk about the shitty version. We'll fix the shitty version. We'll do, we'll do something different. We'll come up with a new thing or, or please come up with a new thing, you know, on your own. But like, but before we actually go and write that or commit to anything, there's there has to be an agreement about the ideas underneath it. I think that's also been a super. We have to yeah, we have to both like it. We have to both believe. I mean, on a very basic level, it might seem obvious, but we we both have to agree on it and be like, it either has to make us laugh or make us think, or hopefully both, and be like, yeah, there's a story here and there's a reason to tell it, uh, or we've always wanted to tell something, uh, you know, write something in this vein. So yeah, we both have to we both have to turn the key at the same time before we jump in on it, which, you know, is, is a good, a nice advantage having a partner as well, because I think two minds are better than one, especially when writing comedy and, uh, and picking what to spend a lot of time on. It gets us ahead of production because the biggest part of production is like, how do you download the, the, the thoughts on the page into the many, many more brains of, of all of the production team? that has to go make it. And so the fact that like we have had to discuss all those things beforehand, uh, I think makes us way more able to like get, get a crew of people. And, and if we're not directing it, getting a director to like uh, understand what the hell we're talking about. Cause we kind of know already, cause we've discussed almost everything going into it. Tell me where did um, most likely to murder come from? We had been working on how I met your mother for three years and it was, which was an amazing experience and just uh, can't say enough good things about that and learning to write on that show and the people we met. But we had, like you said, like Dan had said, you know, we would come from a sketch background. We were just kind of going out and shooting things and making stuff. And then we had achieved some kind of success with how I met your mother and, and actually had some made, made a little money. And, uh, and we were both talking about being like, we want to, we want to make something that we make, and we don't have to necessarily go through all of the same studio steps. And Dan had wanted to wanted to direct a feature. I wanted to be in 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 the movie. So we started writing it towards the end of our time at How I Met Your Mother, with the idea that like once How I Met Your Mother is done, we're going to finish writing this movie. It started with a very silly idea of trying to find a VHS player, like being back home and 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 having a tape you want to watch, and no one having a VHS player. And then we were like well, this isn't a movie. That's, that's not enough for a, a movie. And, and we quickly met, you know, another great thing with a, a partner figuring out, they're like, okay, well, it's time to shift. And like, and we went, we went to the area. That's where we kind of discovered the rear window uh, angle on it, which again, we were writing from a place of like, well, what can we shoot at a low budget? Where, what's a contained amount of sets? 
And with the rear window at all, it's really just about these two homes and, and watching the other home from the back window of, of, of the, uh, the other home. And so we went and built from there, uh, you know, just a comedic rear window is what was born from the original ideas of going home, looking through your old shit and uh, trying to find a VHS player was, became this, uh, this uh, comedic stoner rear window uh, thing right around the time we left time at your mother. That felt like such a great homecoming in, in just knowing like, okay, let's get, let's go back to New York, which was great. We filmed it in New York. We filmed it. We really just put out a blast to the entire UCB theater community who was in New York. And we're like, we're making a movie who, who can be in it. And so every, every single part in that movie is, is, is UCB heads and, you know, people who Billy Eichner. With the exception of Vincent Carthizer. Yes, exactly. We were like, for, for the villain, we were like, we need someone to take seriously. But, and Vincent Carthizer is as, as intense of a real actor as you can get. When he signed on. We couldn't believe, we couldn't believe how on board he was to do it. We were like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, we're making a real movie now. You're, you're a real actor. (laughs) You're not just, you're not just someone who's, uh, we hung out with in a basement. We got to do some improv, but also, as you can probably guess, like on these super low budget movies, you are, the schedule is not your friend. You have no time. And so improv becomes such a luxury. You're really in a place where you are, you're, you're like, okay, we're going to get this, get these lines, you know, as right. We're going to get them once more for safety. And then we got to move. And, uh, and so that's, that's the nature of making really low budget movies on super, super tight schedules is like, you just don't get to, don't get to mess around in the way that maybe Judd Apatow does very jealously. But, you know, I think, it, I think it's all worked out for it. I mean, I'm, we're very proud. It came out very fun for us. How was it directing your first feature? The first day I walked on to set and I was like, look at me, la dida. And I was doing the like, you know, the, the rookie director thing, which is like, which is just taking, you know, like, is this exactly right? Is this, I must, it must be framed perfectly for my cinematic aesthetic. And, and then, you know, the AD calls lunch. He whispers in my ear, we're three hours behind. And I was like, I had a heart attack. And I was like, what? What? Three hours? And instantly, instantly, I just, everything clicked in, which was, I know exactly what I'm doing. I've been making, I've been making short films and music videos and sketches for years now for no money, far less money than this ever was, less crew, all that stuff. And, and I know what it is to, to make a day. I know what it is to rush through production, get the thing you need, get it right, get out. I, I know all these things. The only thing I have to do is do it more days in a row. The biggest thing as a first-time director was just like both trusting my my gut and education that got me to that point. You know, you know, I, it wasn't the first thing I directed. It was the first feature I directed. And so all of the little short pieces that I directed over a day, three, four, five days, what just became like okay it's it's just that it's all the same skill sets just constantly and more for longer that was the biggest part of the learning curve was the the first day heart attack and once we settled into that you know it just became all all the production nightmares that you always hear about and experience on on anything but especially low budget stuff you know we were filming on in various locations around around new york the first week and then somewhere in the middle of that first week, our, our producer came and said, 
the t- the town where your where the two main rear window houses are, which we had spent all of our pre production um, like looking for. It was a very specific thing. We needed one shitty old house across the street from another house, and they both needed to like want to rent to us for very little money. It was a little bit of a needle in the haystack finding that pairing. And two days before we were going to film there, my producer says, the town is blackmailing us and wants to, is doubling the, the, the location fees. And apparently this is like a thing that, that they that they do. They know that they have, you know, a picturesque little town and that when people show up with film crews, they get pot committed and now they can basically, you know, charge you whatever you want. And so anyway, the amount they quoted us was actually double. Our our budget had no way to accommodate that. Our I mean, this is so insane how this works. Literally, our hairstylist, her father was a judge in the in the county, and he called in a political favor. And we're doing this while we're shooting. Like so we're this it was actually, Dan, it was our first day of shooting in the bar. It was our first day of shooting. Uh it was intense and you know i was a producer on the movie and so we were both just kind of taking phone calls as different setups were going on it was insane it was you know it was just absolutely insane and but this random luck that that we got we were able to to get uh, secure the location at a price that we could afford but but totally random yeah and i mean truly and if not for that crazy weird happenstance that that someone on our crew's father had political influence in that county it probably would have fallen apart. I really appreciated too that there was kind of a little Benson reunion with DD Khan and Ethan Phillips as well. That's, I mean, we've said it. This is it's in universe to, to Benson. It's part of the Benson CU. Was that your real goatee, or was that a uh, a merkin you're wearing on your face? I grew a beard for a couple for like two months, and then I shaved it off. And I had I was in well, I was living in Manhattan in my brother in law's house, his apartment, and uh, I had my these two big earrings in and this huge thing and i would walk in to like pick up food at restaurants and i would just walk in like this because it looked like i was the bass player from disturbed or something like it i, I looked like I, I looked like it was 1997 every everywhere i went it was just and it was so brutally embarrassing uh to be in public it was sort of like a scottian kind of like king king tut it was so thick kind of and vibe. gross and and just there was a couple of meals where where Doug like made a point apropos of nothing to say to the, the waiter at the restaurant we were at. Like, I'm in a movie, by the way. It, I mean, just people were looking at me like, what what is this, is this back to the future? What has happened here? Did I wake up in a different time? Doug rapped like maybe two days before the end of the movie. And he the moment he rapped, he shaved his beard off when he showed back up on set and he met a bunch of the crew that he'd never met without the beard before. He got like so many, not only he got so many double takes, people like didn't recognize him. But like, I think also a lot of people were like, oh, Doug, you're a very attractive man. Well, our deep, our DP, Charlie Gruet, who's just, who's absolutely wonderful, uh, did not know me. And, and, and we had done stuff with him and we knew him and he thought he was like, his first reaction was like, who's this producer here? Yes, it's, 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 uh, it's real hair. And uh, it does most of the heavy lifting for that performance. You guys had a huge 2020 between Doolittle and Magic Camp. Which comes first when it comes to that? Can't, oh, Magic Camp happened a long time ago, and then that got buried for a while. We just did. We did. It came first, but it's it's all like you, we we've been fortunate enough to make 
money on doing rewrites coming in on things, uh, whether it's, you know, script doctoring, whether it's a couple of weeks or a, a round table and magic cam was one of the first ones we got. And that was a while, that was a while before. And we did a couple of weeks on that. And, uh, and then Doolittle was long story short was, you know, was we got brought on after production of the first, uh, they shot the movie. They were, the studio wanted to, were unhappy with what, what they saw and they wanted to make some changes. We were friendly with, with, with Chris McKay, who directed the Lego Batman movie. And uh, we had done a lot of this sort of script doctor work with him on some of the Ninja Turtle movies. Yeah. He called us in and then we worked on that for what turned into like a couple months of just trying to piece together stuff and then rewrite stuff for the reshoots. It's one of those things where, like, it's so odd the way that Hollywood credits writers in some projects is strange. Like, you get credited for some things in a weird way. You don't get credited in other projects for other for for other kind of indecipherable reasons. I mean, there's a logic, but it's all obtuse to anyone who's not like deep deep inside the guild. A lot of jobs are sort of like, I'm a plumber. I'm coming in. You've got a clog in your pipe, and pipe, and I and I'm here to like try to unclog it. And, and, you know, sometimes you, those are great jobs because they're, they're fun. They're quick. They're very like task oriented where it's like, okay, this chunk of the second act is, doesn't make any sense or is not working. We're here to fix that. And so anyway, that, that's some of those projects. Those were fun and weird projects to get to be a part of. So when did you get the gig for the Chip and Dale film? We sold Chip and Dale seven years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was, uh, what's known as an open writing assignment. I mean, not even that as much as like, it was just a property that they, well, yeah, something. yeah, but it was an open, I mean, they, but then sure, they, they, yeah, they, yeah, they, they had this property. They were like, maybe we should do something with this. And Disney approached us with as well as Mandeville pictures um, and the producers on it. And our initial reaction was uh, quite honestly, why, why would we do this? Like we both were Chippendale Rest Rangers fans, grew up with the Disney afternoon, loved the show, but you know, in a world where everything's being rebooted, we had to ask ourselves why, and and is is there is there is there something in here that really like makes us laugh? And initially, we we're like, you know, this is not for us. And to Disney's credit, uh, Louis Provost over there, and to Mandeville, uh, you know, Todd Lieberman and Alex Young, they were just like, bring us anything, anything you want, like get, think completely out of the box and just pitch it. Why not? And uh, we had this idea that that we liked. And we pitched it to them thinking there's no fucking way they're going to say yes to this. And then they said yes to it and they let us write it. And the response was really, really good. But they were like, it, it eventually was like, we're never going to make this movie. We can't like at the time, Disney plus didn't exist. The idea that they would spend so much money with their, the few we, the few open weeks they have on a schedule when they have Marvel movies to do and Pixar movies to do. Star Wars it kind of died out of star Wars. Uh, it was dead. And then to Mandeville's credit, they, they didn't let it die. They had a meeting with Akiva Schaefer. He read it and really liked it. Uh, this was, and then that interested Disney, the idea of uh, Disney plus being an area where you can make a little more niche films maybe, and for different kinds of budgets. And so we met with Akiva probably three years ago, roughly. Um, and started talking to him about it and doing rewrites with him 
to get a green light on it. And then, but that's COVID time. So it's really last week. Well, the beginning wasn't COVID. We, we were right in there, but it, man, it's, it, but we did a lot of this on COVID. And, and so, yeah, that was uh, Akiva, Akiva and Mandeville really, I mean, Mandeville really did a great job producing and, and Akiva just came in and just gave it, gave it life and made Disney feel, you know, uh, the excitement they had felt for the original draft that we had written. So it's been a long road and one where we, Dan and I had let go of the project, which is something you have to do. And this business is like, you write it and then you go and you do your best and you believe in it. And it, then it just becomes a, a game of like, will this, or will this not happen? And this just happened to happen. It's, I still can't believe it did. And when you see it, it's, it's pretty damn weird when, when you think, for, especially by Disney standards, it's amazing that it slipped through the cracks in some ways. Uh, so yeah, but that was, so short answer is we sold this seven years ago and, uh, and this is, I guess that's Hollywood for you. What was that original version like? Basically this, the thing that came out, I mean, to happily, again, this is the bit of the magic of it. Like there was a period in the middle of the development where before Disney plus existed, where there was, there was just an understanding that it like, for this movie to be a theatrical release and be a four quadrant movie that appeals to everybody old and young alike. And it just, it just was going to need to be much bigger and broader. Um, And so there was discussions about how to redevelop it into something different, but we'd never really, we didn't really see that version existing. And, and so it it just sort of like just sort of petered out from there. And so thankfully the Disney plus of it all allowed for this movie to, stay a little bit smaller and, and weirder and more niche and so like there's a lot of things that are like different specifics this, this scene is not there this scene has moved over there you know there's a, there's like other little twists and turns throughout the larger plot that are all like you know diff, different ish but if you read that first script you would it's unmistakably you know the basically the thing that's on screen so you know we're really excited and proud of that as especially as people that like have been in the sausage factory for a long time where you're, you're coming in at every step of that process. You're seeing how scripts get both made and mangled. It's very satisfying to us to like, to feel like this thing has, has retained pretty core sense of itself for seven years. It's pretty unheard of in studio filmmaking too. I mean, like, you know, Chris Nolan, that you know, like he makes his movie, it's it, it, that's it's his idea. But like the biggest screenwriters in Hollywood, like get rewritten. It's just kind of understood. We've been rewritten. We've rewritten other people. This is just one of those things that kind of stuck, uh, and it's 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 very exciting. So we're saying this is the inception of cartoons. Yes, that's exactly right. That's what I'm saying. If there's one thing you should take away, it feels like you guys were just completely unfettered when you were writing this like the amount of intellectual property that you're injecting into this Chippendale story I mean just when I'm watching the trailer and then I'm watching the movie and I'm like oh my god here's MC Scat Cat and Paula Abdul <laughs> it's like it feels like you guys were just like okay what other 90s reference can we put in here and you just went over the top in a great way yeah that was a big goal of it we definitely made it a point when we jumped into first of all like it was really important to not feel like this was just Disney IP service. That was like so, I mean, the, literally the original name of the movie was the Rescue Rangers reboot that no one asked for. For us, it like sort of said it was, there's a, there is a little icky when you just feel like they're just basically doing an advertisement for their own, for their own property. 
And so it was really important that we take that initial reaction that everyone probably has when they hear it and fully like embrace that and like spit it back out in, in hopefully an ironic way. You know, for us, like it was just so, so important to really treat Hollywood like the Hollywood for cartoons. And so it wouldn't matter where people come from, like what studio they did a thing for. Actors are actors. They're all just they're all just hanging around at, you know, at uh, La Poubelle on Hollywood. And uh, and, you know, they're all they're all figuring out their careers. They all are having the same conversations. So that was a huge part of it was just like, let's never, ever feel like we're trapping ourselves in in the disney universe i mean doug and i were just talking about this like one of the major shocking joys as a child seeing roger rabbit was that it was the first time that the disney canon had been in the same space as the warner brothers canon and like it might not seem like a big deal now but it was a huge deal at the time it was crazy to see bugs bunny and mickey mouse like together it was weird and and thrilling and so for us it was like so important to hopefully take that that vibe that excitement of like oh my god how do, how do these people end up in the same place together and respect the idea but then really hopefully push it much farther on the practical side of that like we we shot for the moon we said we're going to do whatever we were always doubtful that this is one of the reasons we were like it'll never happen because disney won't won't go talk to sony they won't go do those things and so really really truly to Mandeville, but especially Akiva Schaefer's credit. Akiva, from his many, many years of, of making wonderful things, is friends with just about every person in Hollywood. And and just like did the legwork half the time completely on his own of just like calling the guy, you know, talking to the studio, just like following a lead. Like so Akiva did a stunning amount of legwork in really connecting all of these little dots of like who who can we really get? And there's plenty of characters that were rejected by Disney or another studio who were, they were like, no, no fucking way you're doing that. For the most part, like when we were met with that type of resistance, we were always able to, to like find a really good pivot, something that felt like just as exciting or fresh. And a lot of, I think a lot of times that, you know, maybe even better. Do you have an example of one of those pivot points? One of the more fun happens dance specifics was that we always had, you know, the, a lot of the world that uh, the Dale character sort of lives in is sort of these nostalgia cons where characters, you know, where old actors and old cartoons go to sign $5 autographs for, for you know, people obsessed with the old stuff. And, uh, and the original script, his sort of his best friend there was... was it was Eric. Eric yeah, Estrada yeah. was 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 the was the guy in the booth across from 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 Dale. Uh, uh, they were buddies, kind of in competition with each other. But and so Eric Estrada was there for a long time, and we played with a bunch of chips, jokes, and Chip and Dale. It was, it was silly. And then, of course, at some point, they were like, "That's that's not happening. We're not doing that." And so we had to really brainstorm on a ton of like replacements for like, okay, who's Who's a weird character? Let's start looking at animated characters that we could put in here that would be also kind of like over the hill or not so popular. And so we looked at both like real ones, you know, like, you know, like I think He-Man was there at one point and other other stuff that like, you know, is just not so popular anymore. Some fake ones, which was just like 
lookalikes to like the annoying orange. I don't know if you remember annoying orange, the TV show, but it was like, it was like, what if we get like annoying orange or something? I think we talked about Mr. Kool-Aid, I think yeah, for a while. Mr. Kool-Aid was there for a while. And then, and then it, it really deeply to his credit, Akiva had the idea of doing a, the ugly Sonic from the first release of Sonic the Hedgehog trailers when fans threw a shit fit and said this, this Sonic is too ugly to exist. And so we put that in. We also, for a brief moment, had Jar Jar Binks. And we really did write a draft where Jar Jar Binks was like the, was the like failed actor that like. Was, was, whose real voice was James Earl Jones. And it was like, he's, he is so mad that, 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 that voice uh, ruined his career. It was a, it was funny. I, uh... Yeah, it was very fun. And then, but that actually went all the way up to up the various, you know, corporate ladders. And that was eventually be like, don't, don't do that with Jar Jar. That got nixed. And so Jar Jar left and Akiva had this wonderful idea to do, uh, not Sonic the Hedgehog, but Ugly Sonic, who is the rejected actor from the original Sonic trailers. Who was two? Who got who got recast yeah. after the public said that His, he was who's, too ugly? Whose human teeth freaked everyone out? And uh, so that's a that's an example. We did have several several drafts where he where he revealed that he had nipples, which everyone which everyone was really upset by. And we were like just these blue kind of like tufts of of hairy far nipples, too, far too real and um, detailed. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. So that was a lot of fun to write about about his like physical failing. But that honestly was probably a, an example of something that turned out better. You know, once we kept pushing ourselves and and to like Dan said to Akiva's credit, he he had he had this thought and we we all just ran with it. Yeah, I love those just close ups of the teeth throughout the whole film. <laughs> so fun and bizarre. Yeah, exactly. Just like he's so physically weird and and we just i think he's maybe 10 percent uglier than the actual like ugly sonic but like just enough that you're like oh yeah that's him without makeup on i really appreciated that you guys had this universe where there's cg characters animated characters real life people claymated characters all of these different things all at once and you spend barely if any time explaining just like here's a school where all of these characters are. And it's just like, thank you for not overcomplicating it. Thank you for uh, re- recognizing that. That is something that, that we talked about a lot from the beginning all the way through was, was don't talk about it. It just, this is the way it is. This is how this exists and people will get on board. Uh, and the more rules you make, or the more you'll start to question things. And let's just live in this world where humans and cartoons from all generations live in this world. Some of the cartoons are actors, some are not, uh, just like human. And let's treat the audience with a little bit of respect that they'll get on board. And that school scene and you know, in the beginning was just a way of being like, this, this should be enough to, to understand where, where we're at. So appreciate you uh, appreciating it. We get it too. Because as a, as a watching movies, I, I, my brain always shuts down to those, those rule scenes. I'm just like, I don't care. Like, you know, as long as they're consistent with with what the behavior is and what what the rules are without talking about the rules, I have no problem with it. And then it was important for for me and Dan to like to write something. And then and Akiva totally got that and didn't want to bog it down. So we were all on the same page. 
even physical size that you kept the characters, their size and put them in that world. I love when the one comes home and he's got the regular sized dog as his pet. That was also just one of those fun things where we're like, oh, like this world can be really multi-leveled and specific in a way that it was a really fun challenge of the of the writing and creating the movie was to really have to imagine, okay, if these cartoons are real people, what are all the weird ways that the world accommodates their existence? And that was just a great fun challenge of it to, to find all those little spaces for it. The, set, the sets in the end are a place that I, I we had a ton of fun, like thinking about how you get to feel the size of a, of a location. That was, those are, those are actually like physical locations on set that we got to see in real life. And so it was a, that was a joy because you just like are walking by the Sherwood forest or something or sort of Winnie the Pooh's forest. And it's, and you're like, Oh, it's this tiny little forest. It's great. But it's, but Winnie the Pooh is bigger than the chipmunks. So he's still, he's still a different size. It's a different scope. But anyway, all that stuff was a, was a joy to think about. It was very, it was very specific and every little part had to be kind of reconceived. As somebody that used to work at a video store, I also appreciated the whole idea of the bootleg versions of these because they would always come out two weeks before the regular version would come out. So seeing those uh, was uh, almost a trip down memory lane for me. I think it's a dying breed, but maybe not. I mean, it's um, definitely I remember in New York, you know, the DVD hawkers on the on the subways were, you know, just out there and they're and they're uh, someone had, someone had filmed in the theater. That was definitely one of them. Yeah, that was but one even, of the things, you know, but then 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 fake versions of movies and that kind of thing. Yeah. So were you ultimately pretty pleased with the final product of this? Oh, yes. This is a truly rewarding experience. This is not. Not everyone gets this experience when they write a movie. Yeah. I, I like we've said it before, but uh, I mean, Akiva came on and he just was the, the perfect person to put this in the hands of and, and, and was very collaborative with us the whole way through. And we just very much saw eye to eye and Mandeville and, and Disney to the, all, to all their credit were like, everyone was on the same page with what this was supposed to feel like with some varying differences in terms of making it maybe a little bit softer on some edges, making it a little more accessible. We would have had a hard R if we could have. Chip would have ended up with, with one arm and, and you know, a, a devastating backstory that you couldn't repeat, but it's great. It, it, it's just fun. I, it, I'm so, I'm, we're so pleased with it and still cannot believe that they actually made it. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's really fun. Now, if you originally pitched this seven years ago, I have to ask how many projects do you have rolling around even right now? To be fully employed as a writer in Hollywood, you need to have at minimum eight projects going at one time. That's my, that's my, opinion. I mean, eight, not eight paid projects, mind you. You, you, to get one paid project, you have to have like seven or eight things where you're like working or pitching them out or in some version of a script. And we're taking out a couple TV show ideas and yeah, you got, you just have to be constantly moving. I don't, I don't know what the exact number is, but you have got to be making things, coming up with new things, pitching things, writing them. It's all this sort of like winnowing down a funnel of just like, okay, here's all the ideas that we're interested in. Here's all the ideas that any, that when we pitch those ideas to anyone, they're interested in producing it or, even our agents are excited to like push it out to other people. And then that gets winnowed down to the places that maybe you'll sell it. And then who's actually going to like 
get the script developed into a pilot if you're lucky enough. And that pilot maybe gets bought if you're lucky to a series, but even then you, maybe no one will see the, the first couple episodes and it'll get canceled right away. That sort of reverse pyramid of failure is the existence of being a writer. That you're just like, you have, you got to get up all the balls in the air and, and eventually they're going to come tumbling to the ground. But maybe if you're lucky enough, one of the last things stays afloat to the end. And for features, that runway is so, can be so long. Like we're working on a rewrite now for a Disney property that like, I think was the first draft of it was written by another writer five years ago. Things kick around and, and the, the reason the movies get greenlit it, it has a lot to do with actor schedules and what things line up in terms of dates, things that we have no control over. And sometimes, they, sometimes things that feel quite silly. It's a long road where you just got to write and then forget that you wrote that and hope that it comes back. Yeah, I'm sure it must have been kind of a shock when Chip and Dale returned. There was a, at least a two-some-year period three-year period where where just was like okay like oh goodbye goodbye my friend i'll never see you again and so yeah when we got the call that that it was back on we were ecstatic it was great it's like someone who's been pranked enough to be like this isn't real no you know so there was the first year of working with the key was like but this isn't actually happening and disney was basically just dipping their toe and they hadn't it took like a year for them to at least a year for them to fully commit to a full production. So there was a lot of like, you've hurt me before. Don't hurt me again. I will not let myself be hurt by this again. So I, I don't I, I don't think we both let ourselves uh, believe it until it was like very real and maybe that first check cashed. Until this goes up on Disney Plus in a couple of days from now, I'm still afraid that like the president of the studio hasn't seen it yet. We'll see it and be like, what the hell is this? No. Kill it, kill it now. I don't believe it's actually coming out until until I can see it on my own TV at home. I had read that you guys were doing work on a, I don't know if it's a remake or just has the same title of Rookie of the Year. Coming off of Most Likely to Murder, that was a movie that we got sent just as a like a name, basically like the this title. I you know we grew up with that and and so that was pre the Disney Fox merger, and so we wrote we wrote. That movie with another wonderful writer, friend of ours from UCB, Phil Jackson, and attached to direct it. And it is likewise sitting around in in some. I don't think it's. I don't think they've moved it from in the box that it's sitting in at Fox over to Disney yet. And so that's another one that we're super proud of that script. I promise you, it's it's a very good script. It's a really great update to the old Rookie of the Year movie, which again is a movie that like I grew up loving, but also fits into this category of like, is there a reason to reboot this? You know, and there's a, I think there's a weird equation to like why and when things should be rebooted, which is like, there's some things where it's just like, oh, this is so beloved and important that it like, it needs to remain in the culture. And that makes perfect sense. And then there's other things that are, I think on the opposite end, which are like, oh, that's cultural detritus that like, who cares if we make it again? And that's that's Doug and I's sweet spot. Is oh, what is this? Is this garbage you just dropped on the ground? Hold on, let's yeah. see if we can I don't wash this off. Yeah, I think there's I think there's like a, a place in the middle where people are like, we just we just saw Batman. What are we doing? What are we doing here with another Batman? Yeah, I I, I don't want to touch the movies that were perfect. Like I I don't want to touch uh, you know Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I don't want to touch things that are like. Why? Why go back? Unless you have something new to say or you feel, I, I, I don't want to touch those. 
and I'm, and I'm not so much the purist that I you can't, but there's just certain things I don't want to touch. Having said that, I love the rewrite job of White Man Can't Jump, the reboot, which did not need a, a, a re, uh, to be redone. Uh, but sure, I mean, if they're paying and uh, I'll strap on my Reebok pumps and, and, and my, uh, my, my biker hat and my, my two tank tops that barely fit over my shoulders and, uh, and dribble my way through a rewrite for sure. So, Doug, what are you working on these days? Dan and I have a lot of things together that we're, we're working on. And, you know, I had a show on Netflix that, that, that Dan was a producer on called Pretty Smart. And, you know, we just have some things in development right now. And there's always just, there's, you know, we're doing a job for Disney right now. And, and Dan and I are currently taking a pitch out uh, for a TV show that we've been wanting to do for a while. In a slightly different way of the nostalgia dump of, of this one being in the sort of toy industry of the 90s, a lot of our seminal memories of from childhood were we are always looking for ways to sort of take the piss out of. I was hoping for a Rubik's Cube, the movie. Like legitimately, like that's the sort of stuff that like cracks me up of, of you know, what's the what's the least amount of IP that can turn into a movie? <laughs> Where's the best place to keep up with you guys? Uh, I'm on Twitter a little bit at the Doug Mand, uh, M-A-N-D. So we, we usually if, there, if there's something that we have coming out or I have or Dan has coming out, it'll. It'll be on Twitter. At Gregor Corp on Twitter, my evil corporation name, uh, or it's or Instagram, same thing. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time. This was so great talking with you. Thanks for taking the time to, to watch and talk to us. Thank you, Mike. I'm a big fan of the show. <laughs>